0: What did Martin Luther King Jr. have in common with Richard Nixon and with 18th century revolutionary Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense? Well, all three thought it was common sense to guarantee to every citizen who breathes a set amount of cash every year, essentially as a right. And firstly, to protect against poverty. Nowadays, that idea is flying high again. And in fact, it's being tried out in places like Finland and Canada and Kenya. And some are saying it is time to try it here in the United States. A universal basic income, a UBI of, say, $10,000 per American per year with no strings attached. And is that a good thing? Is it the answer to some future predicted doomsday where robots will be crushing human employment? Will it give people room to pursue passions and not just a paycheck? Or is it wrongheaded and even dangerous to start telling people, don't worry so much about work so anymore. The UBI will take care of you. Well, all of that sounds to us like the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The universal basic income is the safety net of the future. A debate from Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City will choose the winner. And if all goes well civil discourse will win, too. Let's welcome the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome, first, Charles Murray. Welcome, Charles. Tell us who your partner is. Uh, My partner is Andy Stern. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Stern. So I... We do have a strange bedfellows pairing on this side. Charles Murray is a libertarian-leaning political scientist at the American Enterprise Institute. Andrew Stern, for 14 years, was president of the Service Employees International Union, the country's second largest union. So you have a conservative academic. You have a liberal union man. Can
1: you each tell me how this is going to work between the two of you? Charles, why don't you go first? It's going to work great. I, I met Andy at a panel we were on together last August. And about 15 minutes in, I said, I like this guy. (laughs) <laughs> and how about you, Andy? John, I think you
2: should never underestimate the power of a transformational idea.
1: So it brought you together.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the team
0: arguing for the motion. That motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. We have two debaters arguing against it. First, let's welcome Jared Bernstein. Jared, welcome back. Your second debate with us. Uh, you're a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Before that, you were Vice President Biden's economic advisor. Uh, you are also Charles Murray's, your opponent's, frequent sparring partner. You have debated over the UBI in the past. And among all of the issues, all of the many issues that the two of you disagree on, does the UBI make it to the top of the list? Well, that's a long list. Uh,
3: <laughs> But uh, UBI would be at the top. It's an idea that sounds benign, and while I wish I could like it, my fear is that it puts economically vulnerable people seriously at risk.
0: Okay, so we see where you're going. And can you tell us who your partner is? My partner and my friend is Jason Furman. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Furman. Hi, Jason. And uh, you were chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, where you served as President Obama's chief economist. Um, The Washington Post has described you as the White House's wonkiest wonk. They even tracked down your old college roommate, and your college roommate said that when he met you, he was so intimidated, he literally almost turned around and went home. Who was your college roommate? Matt Damon. (laughs) So did Charles and Andy need to be scared as well as Matt Damon was scared?
4: I should be using this time to set expectations well, but instead I'll use it to note that um, Matt did not graduate from Harvard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and yet somehow it worked out. The team arguing against the motion, ladies and gentlemen. Let's begin with round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. The motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future here to argue in support of the motion. First, Andrew Stern, a senior fellow at the Economic Security Project and former president of the Service Employees International Union. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Stern.
2: At 22, my first real job was a welfare worker, determining eligibility for President Nixon's welfare programs. If you had a problem as a client, I had a regulation and a hoop you could jump through. I had no idea that two years earlier, the same President Nixon with Milton Friedman's assistance had proposed a far more radical safety net, a guaranteed income that would be worth over $10,000 for each person today. Friedman explained, We should replace the ragbag of specific welfare programs with a single comprehensive program of income supplements in cash, and do more efficiently and humanely what our present system does so inefficiently and inhumanely. And only a year earlier, Martin Luther King had condemned President Johnson's piecemeal approach to the war on poverty, saying, I'm now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by the guaranteed income. With so many people living in poverty, despite over 100 cash transfer programs and the inhumanity of today's bureaucracy, would be reason enough to institute a basic income as the new safety net. But there are two more even compelling reasons. First, despite all the touted job growth and low unemployment rates, 47% of Americans couldn't find $400 for an unexpected expense. Nearly half are stuck in jobs that make less than $15 an hour. And the number of people engaged in any paid employment is at the lowest level in decades. So secondly, a universal basic income in this new age of insecurity could be both a shock absorber and a supplement to work. Finally, accelerating technology may create the greatest disruption to jobs in history. An Obama administration report said 83% of the jobs paying less than $20 an hour one-third of the jobs paying $40 an hour, that's $80,000 a year, are going to be impacted. The first major disruption may actually be self-driving trucks, the largest job in 29 states, employing over 7 million people. So how could a basic income work after a possible phase-in? I propose that every citizen 18 to 64 would have electronically deposited into their account $1,000 a month, That's $12,000 a year. No strings attached. It's that simple. According to government statistics, that $12,000 ends poverty for the first time for 43 million people. It would allow entrepreneurs to start a business, women to escape domestic violence, or finally be compensated for their caregiving jobs. Workers could be retrained or not accept poorly paid or irregularly scheduled work. And if these payments only go to citizens 18 to 64 and seniors receiving less than $1,000 a month in Social Security, then by a combination of eliminating current welfare programs, not all but some, eliminating tax expenditures, not all but some, not health care or not disability benefits, and then we add new revenue, whether it be a border, a VAT, a carbon, or even Bill Gates robot tax, we can afford to do this in America. A universal basic income is the safety net of the future,
0: and I urge you to vote yes. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew Stern. And that is the motion. Universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Jason Furman, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Furman. Thank you.
4: Let me begin with the premise. Much of the premise for universal basic income is the notion that robots will take all of our jobs and that if we can't be employed, that we'll need something else, some money from the government to take care of us. People have thought this for a really long time. In the 19th century, 70% of our population worked on farms making the food that we needed to eat. If you had told them that 150 years later, almost all of them would not need to work on the farms, they would have wondered where all the jobs could come from. Today, machines do 90% of what workers could do 100 years ago, and yet the unemployment rate is a little bit below 5%, just like the unemployment rate was in the year 1900. As people get richer, It creates new jobs that you never could have imagined in the 19th century. And consistently, people have said, just around the corner, there's going to be a disruption. And yet, we're currently in the longest streak of job creation that we've ever seen in this country's history. Regardless of your views on this question of the future of work, the numbers in UBI proposals tend to sound really, really attractive They just have one downside. They violate the laws of arithmetic. If you give somebody a dollar, that dollar has to come from somewhere. It has to come from cutting benefits that someone is getting or raising taxes on someone. To put some scales on these proposals, Andy's proposal that he just outlined will cost about $1.8 trillion. That's twice what we spend on Social Security. That is more than we collect in income taxes every year. So you would have to double your income taxes. You would have to eliminate Social Security twice. Or if you're not touching Social Security, take all of the income support programs. There's 300 billion of them a year. You can't pay for $1.8 trillion for $300 billion a year. make sure you understand who the losers are. Because you're redistributing money, that creates an equal number of winners as it does losers, because it's just a dollar from here needs to come from there. In most of the proposals, the losers tend to be households with more children relative to a household without children, because today we support you based on your number of children. Or somebody who's unemployed which is something we support quite strongly now with unemployment insurance, would lose and somebody who is employed and went to college would gain or somebody who makes $90,000 a year would win. They would get a better deal than they get today and somebody who makes $30,000 a year would lose. The final thing I would say is we do need changes in our programs. We need to build on what works. We need to end what doesn't work and in particular, we need to support and encourage work, because while there will be jobs in the future, I don't think it's automatic that people can get them, and helping connect people to jobs and get an income is the most important thing for us to do. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jason. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The universal basic income is the safety net of the future. You've heard from the first two opening speakers, and now on to the third, debating for the motion, Charles Murray, the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Murray.
1: If we've learned anything over the last couple of years, and especially in 2016, it is that the working class in this country has a lot of problems. And these problems are ones that I think a UBI can deal with as the current system cannot possibly deal with them. And I want to start out with the example of people who are doing everything right, but are low income. Let's say we're talking about a married couple with children, Uh, They're near the minimum wage. Let's say they each bring in $14,000 a year. That's uh, $28,000 for the two of them. They're good parents. They are good neighbors, but they're also just scraping by. Under the current system, do they get any welfare benefits? Yeah, they do, but at $28,000, a lot of those have been phased out, and a lot of those benefits are in-kind benefits as opposed to cash. In terms of Andy's plan, this couple now has $52,000 per year cash. That means that they are no longer having to rent a place which has Section 8 housing. It means that they are not giving out food stamps to the cashier at the grocery store. They're pulling cash out of their pocket. They are moving toward basically approaching a middle-class income. There are millions of such people in this country. Now let me sort of go to the other extreme and the ways in which a universal basic income gives moral agency whether people want it or not. Let's think of a guy who is your complete screw-up. He drinks too much, he can't hold on to a job, and he runs out of money ten days before the end of the month. Well, under the UBI, he can no longer plead helplessness. His friends and his relatives can say to him, as they cannot say now, okay, we aren't going to let you starve. But you've got to get to your act together and don't tell us there's nothing you can do about it because we know you've got 1000 bucks hitting your bank account next month. That's good. That kind of interaction multiplied millions of times around the country is having friends and relatives deal with human needs in ways that bureaucracies inherently are unable to deal with them. But I don't want to go too far with uh, getting people to shape up. So let's go back to marriage again. You have the guy making $14,000 a year. He wants to marry his girlfriend. Getting married with that little money is a problem. Now with the UBI, they will have a family income of $39,000. If I'm 39, 38, I have to add it up. Uh, even if the wife does not work at all. Or think of a woman who's married to a guy, and they, they have a joint income, they both work, and they're at sixty dollars or $70,000 a year. They're middle class, but she can't afford to do what she wants to do when she has a baby, which is to, to spend a couple of years with the baby. An awful lot of affluent women who can make that choice and who have careers choose to stay at home with their children. Well, let's give middle-class women the kind of economic buffer whereby they can do the same thing. In all of these ways, we have possibilities with the universal basic income of augmenting incomes by dollar amounts, yes, But what we are really augmenting is options. We are augmenting dignity. We are augmenting independence. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Charles Murray. And that motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And here making his opening statement against the motion, Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, former chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden, ladies and gentlemen, Jared Bernstein.
3: So, Jason started uh, somewhere around 1800. I'm going to start uh, by taking you back just about a decade ago when uh, the two of us were working for a new historic presidential administration. That was very exciting. In the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, that part was horrifying. These days in a fact that poses a challenge to our opponent's end-of-work hypothesis, we're adding an average of 200,000 jobs per month. But back then, we were shedding 700,000 jobs per month, over 2 million jobs lost in the first quarter. And why am I telling you about this? Because that recession threw 14 million additional people uh, into poverty. But, and here's the first point I want to impart to you, once you account for the anti-poverty programs, programs that lifted their income, their wages, that provided them with extra nutrition, with housing, and with health care, the number of poor remained essentially flat. Now, the reason I'm underscoring this is because if our opponents' UBI proposals had been in place, this would not have occurred. The tax system needed to support a program that keeps the current safety net in place and builds a a UBI on top of that is not one we should consider realistic, even in the context of this debate where I think we usefully suspend political disbelief to have a discussion in the age of Trump when conservatives are falling all over each other to cut taxes on rich people and cut spending for poor people. Resource constraints exist, even in that world, and a dollar going to someone who doesn't really need it is a dollar that isn't going to someone who really does. Now, of course, UBI supporters from the right argue that the help that we're providing to poor and elderly people today doesn't work. From Ronald Reagan to Paul Ryan, they say, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. But these claims are false, Back when Reagan first made that claim, the safety net lifted 4% of the poor out of poverty. Today, it lifts 40%, more than 40% out of poverty, a tenfold increase. Today, our anti-poverty programs, which UBI uh, proposals would wholly or partially end, lift 40 million people out of poverty, including 8 million kids and 18 million elderly persons. A dollar spent on early childhood education results in roughly $8.60 of benefits to society, about half of which comes from increased earnings for children when they grow up. I'd seriously boost these upward mobility enhancers like quality preschool for little kids and college access for big kids. I wouldn't guarantee everybody a basic income. I'd guarantee low and moderate income people a job. I just don't see how you implement the program, some aspects of which I like, that our opponents are touting without seriously hurting the poor. There's no way to add a program closer to Andy's, as he recognizes, without seriously raising taxes. And I've been in D.C. for almost 30 years and not have I, only have I seen total unified resistance to tax increases among Republicans, I've seen too many Democrats buy into that as well. Unless our nation's politics radically change, I'm sure the answer is the worst-case scenario. A A UBI may well hurt the people who need
0: help the most. Thank you. Thank you, Jared Bernstein. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly as they answer questions from me and from you, our live audience in New York. The team arguing for the motion, Andy Stern and Charles Murray, have argued that the working class and extensively the middle class is in trouble, that jobs are dying, incomes are dying. They argue that the universal basic income is a floor that would work as a hedge against poverty. They make the further argument that there's a social good, that the UBI would augment options, that it would augment independence, that it would remove excuses for irresponsible behavior. The team arguing for the motion, Jason Furman and Jared Bernstein, first of all, they make clear that they are not defending the status quo. They don't think everything's perfect as it is. They do think that reforms are needed. However, they are simply not as pessimistic as their opponents either about the future of jobs or about the performance of anti-poverty programs already in place. And bottom line, they say that their opponent's plan just doesn't work because the math does not add up. Why challenge so vociferously, uh, Jason Furman, this notion that things really, really
4: are changing quickly, that this time it is different? Somebody wrote a book, um guy Martin Ford, a few years ago called Rise of the Robots that made this prediction – The Wall Street Journal in 1960 had an article with the headline, The Robots Rise, that made exactly the same prediction 55 years ago. People have been predicting this for a really long time. There is no evidence for it in the data. So rather than treating this as inevitable, we should be figuring out how people can succeed, thrive, and work in an era when, yes we hopefully will have more robots freeing us up for other, even better jobs.
0: Okay, Andy Stern, your opponent just used the word inevitable, saying it's not inevitable, but you're almost on the pretty darn sure it's inevitable side of the argument. I'm certainly at the point that to ignore the possibility and
2: not plan for it would be a critical mistake for our country. You know, the problem with economists are they try to predict the future by looking at data from the past, and I think we just had an election where people use a lot of data from the past and kind of miss the point because things actually do change in this world? Let's look at this. Elon Musk, Bill Gates... Stephen Hawkins, people that are creating the future all will tell you this is an event that will occur within the next 20 years. And it's not just robots. It's software. It's autonomous vehicles. It's the Amazon new checkout, which is like EasyPass, where you walk out the door and all the things are accounted for. The, the studies by Boston Consulting, the World Bank, the ILO, you know, the European Union, all say there will be a massive disruption in jobs.
0: Let me bring so in Jared look, Bernstein.
3: What I would say is I'd encourage the audience to think in a commonsensical way about this. Look around, and not just in New York, but throughout the country. Do you really see uh, the end of work? I see a lot of work that needs to be done in transportation, in infrastructure, in child care, where people, not robots, are so important. In elder care, same thing. And if we're smart, in areas like renewable energy. And that's precisely the kind of dynamic that has happened throughout history. New opportunities, new sectors, new places for us to do things that need to be done.
1: Okay, Charles Murray. I think something I want to add on to Andy's point is it's not just uh, working-class jobs that are going to get displaced. The really great hollowing out of jobs is going to be in white-collar jobs, in accountancy, paralegal work, in all sorts of things where you used to make a good salary because you had to be pretty bright to do it. You had to make judgments, and guess what? At this point, the judgments made by the software, in many cases, are better than the judges made by the employees.
0: I want to take to the side, arguing for the motion, something that your opponents say, is that don't give up. You're giving up too early. Let's continue to do some sort of creative work on creative programs, education, etc., job matching. Andy Stern, what about that? So
2: I'm not giving up, I think we should raise the minimum wage. I think we should do many of the things they say. People are already insecure. This could be a supplement. It doesn't have to be a replacement, just like the EITC is a supplement to work. There will be work. It is just not going to be enough of it. And we should understand that when the agricultural to the industrial revolution, the industrial revolution to now and on, it was miserable for several decades, as the head of the Bank of England said. And what are we going to do? Just let people suffer?
0: So, bottom line, without a UBI being part of the process, you are saying that there are hopes for some sort of solution are are in vain. They're as good as they
2: are right now, which is pretty so bad.
3: So I actually am, don't think that's our main argument. Okay. I think it's a, a key part of our argument. Uh, this this uh, argument about. Uh, employment not disappearing and going up in smoke. There's still a lot of work for people to do. But I think, to me, our core argument is a dollar going to someone who doesn't really need it is a dollar that isn't going to someone who really does, okay? That is the problem with the U, the universal, of universal basic income. I mean, uh, their plan gives $12,000 a year to Bill Gates, to Warren Buffett, and they don't need it. Uh, And in fact, Andy talked about the EITC. That's a really important wage subsidy for uh, low-income people, lifts 10 million people out of poverty every year. He takes the EITC and he takes food stamps and he puts that into the UBI and dilutes that anti-poverty effectiveness. And that, to me, is the core problem here because it's not just that the UBI – is uh, going to people who don't need it. It's that you're undermining some poverty reduction okay. effects that are working let, I want to that. let
0: Charles Murray respond to that. that you're, they're saying that your plan would be burning some anti-poverty programs that actually do good and do work.
1: We have, two, we have two different things we're conflating. Yeah, the, the, one is can we afford the program, and the second one was <laughs> will people at low-income levels be better off? The people who get the most money in, in terms of the size of the benefits are single women with children. And under the additional twelve thousand dollars, the numbers add up to about the same they are, they, don't, they are not winners or losers uh, in in this calculation. But in terms of all the other low-income people, the ones who are making $15,000, $20,000 a year, particularly a couple, an additional $24,000 onto their income, they are way better off. So if you want to say we can't afford it, let's engage in that debate. I'll be glad to do it. But the, the idea that, oh, they're going to lose their food stamps, they're going to lose their EITC, well, the 12000 bucks for most low-income Americans is way more than they are getting in those benefits.
4: Uh, First of all, uh, two things. One is that's actually factually inaccurate and that in certain circumstances um, you actually are getting more benefits today. And the reason is because those bureaucrats making people jump through hoops we've seen denigrated so much do things like on your tax form you fill out the number of children you have and you get a larger EITC if you're in a family with three or more children. Another thing those bureaucrats do is unemployment insurance. They make sure you're unemployed they make sure you're looking for a job. The evidence is that actually when you put a bit more funding into the part where they screen you to check whether you're really looking for a job, it actually helps more people look for jobs and find jobs. It's not so simple. It's not writing them a check, but it's for a good purpose with a good outcome. Andy Stern.
2: I had three binders in front of me to be so helpful. And now, I guess, if I'm a welfare worker, I also have to drug test the people who are unemployment because that's now what we're going to do. We're going to force the people on Medicaid to work. You know, this is not a very benign welfare system. And Martin Luther King had it right. You know, putting people's choices in their own hands is the greatest dignity you can give someone. And asking some bureaucrat to fill out their form, you know, is not the kind of dignity we need if we have another choice.
0: I want to give your side thirty seconds to respond to their. Well-made point, I think, that you're talking about giving money to rich people as well who may not need it. Okay, so
2: the one-tenth of one percent, which is $62 million, pay the same tax rate as – the people in the 20% bracket. They're getting money every single way. So all of a sudden we want to give money to poor people, and we can't do it because somehow we're giving too much money to rich people. We have a distribution problem. And putting this on the back of UBI, Bill Gates' $12,000 is a pittance compared to what he's getting in every other tax expenditure that we should
0: be talking about okay. as well. That is responsive. Now, I don't want to dig on that point anymore because I want to hear you respond to the, their point that requiring means testing for people to get benefits, requiring drug testing, requiring them to prove who they're married to, who they're not married to, is humiliating. And their system uh, in, injects dignity where it does
4: not exist now. I very much believe in dignity. Your EITC <laughs> is an incredibly easy thing to claim. You can spend that money on whatever you wanted on. Most of the hoops we've heard about, the drug testing, the limits on what you can do, have been put in place over the years by conservatives in the name of their notion of dignity, and I would reform those programs. That's different, though, than universal. I'll take a question from over in the corner there.
0: Uh, Hi, Jillian Creighton with Futurism. Um, So for those opposed to UBI, we've heard a lot about how... uh, It's a bad idea because it would result in either cutting benefits or raising taxes. The United States spends more money on defense than the next. How many nations combined? Is there no possibility of perhaps taking funds from that arena and reallocating them to maybe focus on our own citizens?
4: Some of this is about, um, first of all, the taxes, by the way, just to do the magnitude of them. Um, To pay for this plan would be $1.5 trillion per year. That would be nearly as much as we collect in income taxes today. Um, For higher taxes, there's a lot of things I do with higher taxes. No one is going to support doubling the income taxes people say today. On defense spending, um, to some degree I agree with you um, that I could see arguments for lower defense spending. Then the question is, what do you think the best use of that money is? Is it a check for someone making $60,000 a year? Or is it universal preschool?
0: I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Square U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator and host. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. The universal basic income is the safety net of the future. I want you to, to reiterate the point that you made in your opening statement to kick off this next section about the, social, the impact on the social fabric of a UBI in terms of what you were talking about having options.
1: Really quick, quickly, I'm saying that the kinds of human needs uh, that we need to deal with are best dealt with by friends and relatives and that the UBI, one of its major effects is to focus resources on the community, The key to understanding the UBI is not that I get $12,000, but everybody else is getting the $12,000, and everybody knows it. And that triggers a cascade of feedback loops, which are precisely what American civil society has always been about, dealing with human needs at the lowest possible level.
0: It's the most ephemeral part of your argument, but also one of the most interesting. I want to take it to the other side.
3: Yeah, I don't find it that interesting. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) The... So the thing, the thing that we're trying to impart here is that not that what we have is great, but that there are many ways in which I think you don't appre- – that, that people don't appreciate, Charles doesn't appreciate, in which these things are working. And yet in its place – we have what sounds to me like this kind of Charles Murray fantasy about civil society. And when he starts talking about friends and relatives will do that, maybe he's right, but that's just a fantasy. What I'm telling you about is that in reality, there's a set of things that are working to help people right now. They're not perfect. We need to build upon them. But we can't throw them out because Charles has dreams of friends and relatives helping you in civil society.
0: That's, that's ephemeral, <laughs> is see. Yeah, if you could stand up. Thanks.
4: Um, So I have a question for the four side. Um, You talked about positive social pressures from people knowing that you have that money. How would you avoid having negative social pressures with companies trying to suppress paying a livable wage? Well,
2: well, I think the good thing about uh, having $12,000 is you basically have your own strike fund. You know, right now, if you are desperate for work, if you only have $400, don't have $400 for an unexpected expense, and someone offers you a job, you have not much choice but to take it. But to have walkaway money, to have an ability to say no. You know, gives you a, a series of choices to start a business, to do things that people can't even dream of doing to now. I think, you know, gives people agency, gives them the same rights that the rich kids do who live in garages in Silicon Valley because someone's giving them a parental basic income. It gives everybody a basic income to do what they need to do. What is the
0: parental basic income?
2: Parental basic income is listen, how many of you in this audience are like me who help your kid go on vacation, who help your kid, you know, <laughs> Their, pay their auto insurance or help them put a down payment on a home? Rich people have a basic income called their parents or middle class people <laughs> called their parents. Why doesn't everyone have the same person?
0: Down in the corner there. Um, instead of uh, looking at this from the perspective of it can't be done because it's either raising taxes on the middle class to pay for it or it's coming the money's coming from other programs let's assume that you are tasked with putting this together i would like to challenge you to come up with some other ways you could maybe pay for it like carbon taxes reduced health care costs raising flat taxes on everyone of 10 percent taxing financial transactions I, okay, at okay, fraction rate. Gonna, like see that. where you're coming from
3: yeah uh, like what would you do i am um, solution uh, during look i support a lot of what you're trying to say there because in my work i 'm often thinking about precisely those sorts of of mechanisms to derive more revenue, uh, and I also like the idea about taking a chunk of defense spending and and using it uh, for social benefits for people 's well being what i don 't like uh, is giving it to people who don 't need it and so you have to think about biggest bang for the buck. what you just described isn 't going to raise one point eight trillion so it 's not going to pay for for what they've described. The numbers just don't add up. So you have to get the biggest bang for the buck. And the biggest bang for the buck comes from the kinds of things we've been talking about, not from wasting precious dollars on
0: people who don't need them. Charles, would you like to respond to that? I, it's well, only-
1: I think that if we're going to talk about budgets, we better look at trend lines because I think the... Uh, The statement is the safety net of the future, and if you play out the trend lines for the costs of Social Security and welfare programs, I'll tell you what happened when I did uh, the book In Our Hands back in 2006. I calculated the cost of my plan and the amount of money we were spending on transfers, and I said the lines would cross between the costs of the programs in 2011, which they did. The point is right now that that a basic income, you can predict demographically pretty much exactly what it's going to cost you, and it's going to be a very sh- shallow slope. What we're looking at with the other entitlement programs are very steep rises. So if you're talking about the affordability of this today, you've got one set of issues. If you're talking about the affordability of this in 2030, you've got a very different situation. Okay, another question?
4: Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm also with Futurism. Um, there, someone stated earlier that there was an assumption that new jobs are exponential, that no disruptions ever coming. And uh, my question is that, you know, 25 years go by, and we see clearly that the job market cannot keep up with automation and employment reaches depression levels. Would you then support UBI at that point? And okay. if not, what solution would you Yeah, let's you take that question
0: to the side arguing against the motion Thank and what you. it's meant for. Yeah.
4: To be clear, it's I'm Jason not Furman. talking about the very far future. And I think if we're ever in this situation, I would be perfectly comfortable allowing the robots to design our UBI program <laughs> for us. Um, if we're looking at the next couple decades, though, I'm much more concerned with what we can do to prepare people for those jobs rather than giving up and assuming that
0: yeah, they and I, and I just want to say in terms of sort of an instruction to the jury, it, it's, it was agreed by the debaters that we're not talking about – You know, the year five thousand for these guys—they don't have to defend that. Right down the aisle here. Hi, my name's Steph. Um, My question is: Do you have any concerns that if you do give a thousand dollars a month to people, that inflation would just end up affecting it in the end, so it'll be worth less?
2: Do I? I certainly have a concern, but. You know, the Alaska dividend, you know, hasn't proved to be a big inflationary. I'm
0: not sure everybody knows about that. Okay,
2: in Alaska, instead of giving everybody a new welfare program that Jason and, and Jared would redesign, you know, they decided just to give people money from the oil reserves directly to people. And they have a trust that every month. Every year, I'm sorry, people get something between $1,000 and $2,000 a year. And in 2008,
0: they got $3,289 per person.
2: There and the other experiments. We did five experiments in the United States about universal basic income during Richard Nixon's time. We're now doing it in Finland and Ontario, and we'll learn more, but so far there's not evidence. Uh, If I could just say very briefly, that's
4: not an inherent problem to UBI. It's a fully solvable one. You can take the benefit and index it and have it grow over time. That being said, if you look at many of the UBI proposals, they don't have that feature. So, for example, they index to inflation, but they get rid of health care. You're supposed to buy it out of your UBI. The cost of health care rises faster than inflation. So, You have to look at the details of these things, and I worry that a lot of them, by taking away natural ways, you know, going up food stamps, go up with the cost of food. If the cost of food goes up, they go up automatically. Anything in this going to automatically go up with the cost of food, Um, I think that's unlikely that that's how it would end up being designed, and that makes me worried.
0: And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Andrew Stern, author of Raising the Floor, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream.
2: So Bill Gates once said, we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that's going to occur in the next 10. Don't let yourself be lulled into inaction. The fact is that we can't afford to tinker much longer because change is happening on an accelerated basis. A safety net that was built when I was a caseworker in the 21st century is not the right fit for the 21st century. Not in a world where Uber, the largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the largest media company, has no creation other than by its participants. Amazon, the most Valuable retailer, owns no inventory. And although I wish I could go back and change what happened when Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon all were for guaranteed income, I can't, but we can go forward in a way that gives people the dignity and the choice, that gives the warehouse workers at Amazon or gives the truck drivers or the insurance agents, the accountants, some sense that their future will be secure. Our choice, according to the thousand experts at Pew Research, is this. Either we're going to do something or we're going to see vast increases in inequality, masses who are effectively unemployable, and breakdowns in the social order. That's not the America we want. A universal basic income, it's flexible, it's humane, it ends poverty, it offers choices and stability now and as we transition to a new economy. It's the one comprehensive policy that has support from both the left and right. UBI has issues, I admit it. No single policy is going to ever solve every single problem. But I remember what Winston Churchill once said about democracy. It's the worst form of government except for all others. And I would like to say UBI as a policy is exactly the same. It is far superior to all the other choices we have.
0: Thank you, Andrew Stern. And now making his closing statement against the motion, Jason Furman. He is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
4: I certainly can't predict the future. If I had been around 50 years ago, I wouldn't have known that we'd have lots of people employed as software engineers and app developers and all the other things that we have in our economy today. I can't tell you exactly what the jobs will be 50 years from now, but I can tell you Americans are more likely to get those jobs and succeed in those jobs if they have a good education everywhere from preschool through college. That's something we're dramatically underinvesting in today. I wish there was a single magical bullet that would solve all our problems. I think actually if there was one, it probably would be, education would be the closest thing. But the world is a messy place. I think it probably makes sense to give you more support when you're unemployed than when you're not unemployed. If you have a larger family than a smaller family, We're not gonna get those programs exactly right. We may not even get them close to right. But rather than saying, let's get rid of all of them, let's talk about the things we're doing wrong, try to make them better, because getting rid of all of them runs into this problem that I've harped on again and again, which is arithmetic. If you support giving everyone If The million dollars a year that I talked about before sounds even better to you than the ideas you've heard. Ask yourself where that money will come from. Eliminating the Defense Department would not be enough to pay for this proposal. A carbon tax would pay for 10% of this proposal. We have a limited set of resources in our country. We need to use them in a smart, effective, targeted way for the people who need them most for the areas that will have the highest returns, which is why I would urge you to vote against this motion, which would drain money from all of that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jason Furman. The motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Charles Murray, author of In Our Hands, A Plan to Replace the Welfare State.
1: Jared and Jason uh, have talked a lot about the people who are being most helped by the current welfare system, while uh, Andy and I have focused a lot on a much broader swath of the population. But let me go to those people who we refer to as living off welfare. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to put myself in that position. Let's say I'm 20 years old. I've gotten a terrible education. Uh, I don't have any job skills. I don't have a job. I live in a neighborhood where most of the other people are in the same fix as I am. And then I hear people uh, saying that I'm a slacker and that I ought to take advantage of my opportunities. And I say, opportunities, what opportunities? There is no realistic route for me. Yes, I will get my welfare benefits from the current system. It's humiliating, and it ties me to where I am, can't afford to move. In that context... You have the UBI come in. The UBI does not exhort me to go out and get a job. It doesn't stage manage my life in any way. It doesn't give me guidance. What it does is say to me this one thing, and I've never had a reason to believe it before. Your future is in your hands. That simple message, your future is in your hands, is what we in this room most want for ourselves and what we most want for our children. Please join me in endorsing a plan that will make it true for all of our fellow citizens as well.
0: Thank you, Charles Murray. And the motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future and here making his closing against the motion, Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities.
3: Of course, we want you to support our position and vote no on the question, but frankly, I care a lot more about what you take home with you from this debate. I've been a social scientist now for over three decades, and the thing that motivated me in my 20s burns just as bright in my 60s, and that's this. People must be able to realize their potential, their economic potential, their educational potential, their spiritual potential. I get that it's easier to write a check for everyone, including those who don't need the money, than to do the heavy policy lifting that can break down the barriers that so many people face today. I wish... I could do that with a UBI check with $1,000 a month to buy the dreams that Charles talked about, but they're more expensive than that. By providing everyone with with that kind of income, you're not going to come anywhere close to ensuring secure housing, adequate nutrition, access to quality childcare, educational opportunities from preschool to grade school to college and beyond, and a decent job that pays a living wage. What's more, we've made real progress against every one of those barriers. Not enough, by a long shot. And the next four years, please God, make them just four years, uh, (laughs) will be pure defense, pure defense, trying to protect the progress that we've made. I started my career as a social worker a few blocks north of here. Every single day, bar none, I saw clients that were people just like me, except for they weren't white and where doors were flung open for me, they were slammed shut for them. If Andy wants to provide those folks with some extra resources, fine. Good idea. But let's not kid ourselves that we've helped them to overcome the barriers to realizing their potential. That work is much harder, much longer lasting in the lives of those who've been left behind and thus much more important
0: than UBI. Thank you. Thank you, Jared Bernstein. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where the motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. I want to say one more thing. We do this as a philanthropy. I, I know that you paid to, to get in here and bought your tickets, but the ticket prices do not cover nearly the cost of what we do. And when we, when we produce these debates, I've talked about the podcast and the, and the radio broadcast, we put that out to the world for free. And, in fact, to, I'm announcing that there's a real way now to, uh, to donate to us, uh, and that is to use your phone and text the word DEBATE. This is really simple. Text the word DEBATE, and you'll get a link to donate online. And, the, and you text the word DEBATE to the code 797979. Text DEBATE to 797979. All right, so we're going to wait for the results of the vote to come out. I think we're ready. As I explained, the team whose numbers change most in the upward direction between the first and the second vote will be our winner. In the first vote, 35% agreed with the motion. 20% were against a very large 45% were undecided. Let's look at the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 35%. Their second vote was 31%. They lost four percentage points. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote went up from 20% to 61%. They pulled up 41 percentage points. The team arguing against the motion, our winner. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you. And with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rine, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmael, From Intelligence Squared U.S.,